Okay, good morning, everyone. Sorry we're running a little late today. We were, got to do some HVAC work today, but unsuccessfully. <laughs> so well, hopefully the temperature doesn't get too unbearable. If it does, uh, bear, maybe just wave your hand at Barry, and Barry, you can open a door, shut a door, provide a jacket, I don't know. We'll see what we need. Okay, we left off in, uh, we're, we're taking a look at Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And when we left off on page 90, we'll simply pick up there to draw this, this chapter, um, four to a conclusion. And of course, this chapter largely has followed the theme of Christ, not the Christian, is the center focus emphasis of Christianity. And of course, the critique being that American Christianity has flip-flopped that. And in fact, in some extreme cases, made Christ sort of a, an asterisk um, where the main story, the main event, the main actor is the Christian. So we are, uh, we are on our way away from that kind of theology. And then into chapter 5, we're going to talk about um, justification. Um, we're going to talk some about the law and gospel distinction. Um, and then we're going to look at also some of, some of the parables as well. Before we do that, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so if we flip to page 90 together and just look up at the top, um, here Wolfmuller writes, Modern theology is hesitant to speak of the wrath of God, but without God's wrath for sin, there is no making sense of the cross. So we've kind of diagnosed this idea on some deeper levels that it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg here, um, but where where you notice that talk of sin or the true nature, the true depravity and depths of sin or um, the justice of God's wrath and the extent to which that just wrath goes, when these things atrophy away, so does Christ crucified. And again, why do I say it's a chicken and the egg? Because you could also get rid of Christ crucified and then of necessity need to soften these other things. Um, however the case may be, we see this atrophying in American Christianity all over the place. And irrespective of what denominational name might be on the sign, I mean, there are many Lutheran churches that succumb to this as well. So here, Wolfmuller reminding us of one of his major points here in this chapter, that um, where there's this hesitancy to speak of the wrath of God and his wrath over sin, then there's no making sense of the cross. Wolfmuller continues, God's wrath is poured out not on me, but on his Son. On the cross, the Son of God himself suffers God's wrath. In, suffer, in the suffering of Jesus on the cross, God's wrath is propitiated. It is satisfied. Okay, and so there's a, there's a kind of a technical theological word there, propitiated, propitiation, um, to be satisfied. It's also the language of atonement. 
which has inherent within it the idea of satisfaction. So, um, and of course, we took a look at uh, Psalm 22, which Wolfman is going to quote again for us. Um, that was on page 88. And then also Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. That was on page 89. So these are our foundations in the scripture from which we're setting forward this theology. All right, next paragraph. Jesus is smitten by God and afflicted so that we might be forgiven and loved. Jesus prays Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might pray Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In the profound threefold suffering of Jesus, and you remember what this was, this was uh, Wolfmuller's language was the physical suffering, the suffering of shame, which we might kind of call a psychological suffering, although it's maybe a little deeper than that. And then the spiritual suffering, that's the threefold suffering of Jesus. And believe it or not, it actually, you know, Wolfmuller makes the argument, I think he's right, that it kind of goes from lesser to greater. So often we're fixated on the physical sufferings of Christ, as great as that was. It wasn't as great as the shame, as great as that was. It wasn't as great as... Um, the uh, forsakenness of God, the spiritual suffering endure. So here, um, this is what Wolfmuller is recalling to our minds by referring to this uh, this threefold suffering and the profound threefold suffering of Jesus. The holiness of God and the love of God find their full expression, and the result is our life. Now, this is an idea. Wolfmuller couches it in different language, but it's what I've been quoting to you from Saint Paul in um, Romans, um, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wolfmuller is using that, the holiness of God being the justice of God and the love of God um, being the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is his graciousness. And these both come to their fullest expression on the cross, and the result of that is our life. Okay, in the giant font, the cross the simple teaching that Jesus died for sinners is the heart of the scriptures. It should be the heart of our theology. American Christianity has failed to keep the cross at the center. American Christianity has failed to make Christ the beginning and the end. This failure is profound. It results in confusion, pride, despair, now, well, we know the confusion. Where's the pride and despair come from? As we've seen Wolfmuller do it in an earlier chapter, he's going to do it again for us here in this next chapter, is where you don't have the gospel, where you just have the law, you tend to have the law um, also toned down to where it's doable. You know, like these are the ten suggestions. <laughs> do your best. Um, and where that occurs, then you either have one of two reactions or some combination thereof. Um, pride or despair. Hey, I'm pulling it off. I can do this thing. I'm living the Christian life or at least better than average. You know, pride or despair. I'm not pulling it off. I can't do this. This is my secret. I'm not really a Christian. I must not be a Christian. So these kinds of um, despairing thoughts. So where where the gospel goes away, where Christ crucified goes away from the center of the theology, you have confusion, as Wolf Mueller says, and then pride and despair on account of there just being kind of a dumbed-down version of the law. And then he also says, and a vacuum of comfort and peace. 
And I think that that's um, maybe not obvious to all people who are sort of entrenched in um, in uh, contemporary Christianity, American Christianity. But um, over the long haul, you realize that it's not a comforting spirituality. It's not a spirituality of peace. It's a spirituality of do more, be more, strive, strive, strive. Um, some some folks who have come out of American Christianity, maybe particularly American evangelicalism, has described it as being on a tr- spiritual treadmill, just constantly running, 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 and not getting anywhere. Um, and so, in the long run, you you become stripped of comfort and peace. So, what we want to do is take our eyes off of ourselves and set our eyes on Christ. Christ and Him crucified for us at the center, Christ and His serving us in divine service, and therein we derive comfort and peace. Ironically, it's that comfort and peace that then inspires us and strengthens us to go and be active in our vocations and be inspired to do other good works that we feel our hearts drawn to. Um, So that's kind of the irony. It's kind of the irony is focusing on Jesus ends up producing good works. Focusing on good works ends up producing exhaustion. <laughs> and Jesus tells a parable to this extent um, as well when he talks about the vine and the branches, one I've mentioned before. Um, if, the, if the branch wants to be fruitful, he doesn't focus on being fruitful, he focuses on abiding in the vine. And then if you abide in the vine, you bear much fruit. So I set on Jesus, we become fruitful. I set on the, on the work we're doing, we become exhausted. <laughs> All right, so let me just finish up with Wolf Mueller, and then we'll pause and see if you have any reflections on this. He continues, It does not have to be this way. Jesus continues to preserve his church. Jesus will preserve the preaching of the cross until his return. While the suffering and death of Jesus might not be the center of the teaching in American Christianity, the cross remains the central event in history the central teaching of the scriptures, and the central focus of the Lutheran church. These are objectively true things. And of course, beautiful, a little bit of a tangent, but I always like, whenever my mind is brought to this point, I like to remind myself of this, and I'll remind you of it also, that even the the bifurcation we have, um, B.C. and A.D., (laughs) uh, that marks... The Christ event, the coming of Jesus, the entire time of our world is noted by his coming. And it really doesn't matter if you try to slap secularized labels on top of that. Nobody can argue about the structure. There was an event that happened, and whatever you want to label what happened before, whatever you want to label what happened after, that event still dictates it, and that event is Jesus. So no matter how the world might try to obfuscate that, they simply can't. The structure of time itself in our world has been forever altered by Christ and him crucified and risen. All right, well, that brings us to a conclusion of chapter 4 in this meditation on Christ at the center. Um, any, uh, any reflections, questions, anything resonate with you that you'd like to uh, make a comment on? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, this last little part that we read about the um, uh, Jesus will preserve the, the preaching of the cross. It, that We know that's true, but my question is, Satan's so alive and well that he's uh, 
preserving his preaching too, which is a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah, it's yeah. a big problem. You know, I, this is a well-worn kind of you know statement by Luther, um, and I. But I actually think you can find it outside of Luther, even preceding Luther. At least, certainly, you can this idea. But um, you know, Luther talks about how the gospel is like a rain cloud, and it it moves by God's grace over a place. It rains, and the place flourishes right up until the people start despising and neglecting it. And then if they despise and neglect it and take it for granted and don't want it, God eventually just moves that rain cloud along. And I think, I think to tell you the truth, you know, some of the pain we're experiencing in the West is as Europe has rejected the gospel, as America is rejecting the gospel, we're seeing that cloud depart. The landscape of American Christianity has changed drastically even in our lifetimes. Um, and many people have experienced, well, the church I, the evangelical church I used to go to is gone. It didn't go anywhere physically. It's still meeting in the same building, but something changed and it slid out from under my feet. It's no longer what it once was. It's changed with the times and not for the better. Um, this is the kind of thing that we're seeing all over the place. And we see it in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod as well. Um, we see this, this slipping away. So very painful to see that cloud because people despise it. Um, very painful to see it move away. I think one of the things we can do to take heart is um, look, look vertically, look up, and see the whole church, not only the church on earth, but also the church in heaven and realize we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses and we're not alone and just because the majority is of uh, is around around us is wicked and anti-christian and despises the gospel doesn't mean that heaven and the innumerable saints and angels don't also stand with us so that's one great comfort we have looking vertically but then we also have great comfort if we if we look horizontally and say well where has that where has that gospel cloud that gospel rain gone and there we can look in the southern hemisphere and we can see um, that the gospel is alive and well in places that it used to not be. Um, for example, Africa is just booming, and um, we are in fellowship with some uh, synods in Africa, uh, one of which I know is 5 million members strong that we're in fellowship with. That over doubles the, the LCMS. So it's kind of interesting because if you just if you use the language of what is a what is a confessional Lutheran okay somebody who subscribes to the book of Concord who says the scriptures are the sole source and norm of all theology that's binding to the conscience um, this this book is uh, a secondary norm it's normed by the scriptures and then this book gives us kind of the definition of certain controversies in the medieval period what it means to be part of the small c catholic church okay so if we define that as kind of confessional lutheran um, it'd be very interesting to see because you'd find confessional lutherans all over the world and you would probably find the majority of them in africa large numbers of them even in south america some and a growing number in china um, so i think this is one of the things even though it's quite painful for us because we see our countrymen um, losing out we can rejoice that we see that Christ is faithful and is calling many sons to glory, even, even those of other parts of the world. So I think we can take comfort in that, consolation that as well. All right. Thank you for that. Any other, uh, any other thoughts or reflections?
If not, that's fine. We can move on. All right, let's um, turn to page 91 in chapter 5, here the beginning of, of chapter 5. And Wolf Mueller has titled this, Your Name, colon, Your Name, Righteous. And he has a quotation here of Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, this language of justified comes to us from um, Latin, and it is to be made righteous. And so how is it, according to Paul in Romans 5.1, that we have been made righteous before God? And the answer that he gives is, by faith. Now we know from the rest of Paul's writings that it's by faith, and he means by faith apart from works, by faith and not by works. Um, so we have been justified, we stand righteous before God, because we believe in him, namely what he has given us in his son Jesus Christ. And that's really this second clause, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, the, that's what faith grasps hold of and believes this promise that we do in fact have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his cross. And thus faith grasps hold of this and God credits that faith as righteousness. Okay, So when we're talking about justification, we're talking about standing before God. Um, we can talk about righteousness in, in terms of our relationship to one another, but that's a different kind of righteousness. It's a different thing we're, we're talking about there. The primary kind of righteousness we're talking about is our righteousness, quorum Deo, before God. Not quorum mundo, before one another, but quorum Deo, before God. And um, that's really going to help us to understand what Wolf Mueller is after in this chapter. At numerous points, we want to keep it straight in our minds that he's referring to this vertical relationship we have with God, and he's well within the paradigm of what we Lutherans call justification. All right, let's drop down. You can see that he's included some conversation. I commend that to you. Um, it's, it's kind of illustrative of his point. But let's get down to that last full paragraph on page 91. This teaching is what the Bible calls justification. It is one of the most important teachings in the scriptures. The Lord graciously gives us his perfection. He calls us righteous. The Lord takes the obedience of Jesus and applies it to our account. We are imputed with Christ's righteousness. Jesus shares his holiness with us. Justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Okay, in what sense is justification the article upon which the church stands or falls? Well, if you have justification, you're standing before God, is at least in some part based on your works. As it turns out, it's kind of like this. Whenever you, whenever you take a concept like grace and you add works to it, grace totally evaporates. <laughs> because what actually gets you into heaven is what you do. Um, it's kind of like we were talking about on Sunday. Um, as soon as you introduce free will decision theology, I choose to follow Jesus. 
the importance of Jesus and everything else evaporates because materially all that matters is whether you made a decision for Jesus or against him. That's the only thing that materially matters. Everything else evaporates. Um, so too, when we talk about grace and works, if you add works in, the grace evaporates. And also if you talk about faith and works in terms of justification, if you add in those works, the faith aspect evaporates. Because now you can't simply trust in who God is, what God has done and what God has said, but because you've added in works, you also have to trust that those works that you've done are sufficient, you see? And so now you're adding to faith, faith in your own works. And who could ever be certain if their works are enough, or done with the right intent, or done with enough of the heart, or done without it, you see? So it strips us of all comfort, and it also evaporates the essence of faith. Because the essence of faith excludes our works. We simply look to God and say, this is who you are, what you've done, and what you say. I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. <laughs> it's not as though faith is somehow some merit or virtue within us. Not when considered at this level. Not when we're thinking in terms of justification. Um, so faith is that which receives what God promises, what God has done in Christ. All right, so that's this idea. Now, um, the perfection of Christ, we know that he is born of a woman, born under the law. We know that Christ keeps the law perfectly, fulfills the law in all points, um, including the extremity of the cross when God forsakes him and mankind curses, mocks, and reviles him. He still fulfills the law perfectly. It's this perfection of Christ, this perfect righteousness, that then God credits to us. The language in, in Scripture, there's technical language for it, uh, but it comes to us in, in English as reckon. He reckons us righteous, or counts is kind of a more modern take on that. He counts us righteous. Am I actually righteous? No, I daily sin much and deserve nothing but punishment. Even if I can keep myself from doing things that I know are wrong, even if I can keep myself from saying things that I know are wrong, what have I already had to do in order to do that? Fight all of the sinful thoughts, impulses, and desires that are directing me in those ways. How do I control that? How do I stop that? You can't. So I am not righteous, but God says to me I'm righteous. How can this be? Well, he declares it to be so. He reckons it to be so. He takes what belongs to Jesus and credits it to my account. He takes the righteousness of Christ and reckons me righteous with that same righteousness that belongs to him. Do you see how that works? Okay. Um, by the way, this is what Romans, the first half of Romans, is all about, uh, particularly uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, emphasis on 4 and 5. But that's really where this theology comes from um, in, its, in its really well-formulated sense. Um, but there is there's another sense in which every miracle that Jesus does is a teaching of grace alone and faith alone. Lord, heal me. Lord, cause me to see. Well, let's see how many good works you've done. <laughs> no! Jesus simply 
heals, and then frequently he says, your good works have made you well. No! Your faith has made you well. And if you look at that language, it's even more provocative, because more often than not it says your faith has saved you. So everywhere where Jesus says your faith has saved you, he's talking to people who, there's no, there's no idea of, let's see how many Let's see how many sins you have, how many debits. Let's see how many good works, how many credits. Let's see if these balance out. No, that thought never enters the mind of Jesus. That pronouncement never leaves his lips. What he says and said is, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. So where does Jesus teach faith alone? Everywhere. <laughs> and Paul picks up on that also and says, look, this is all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. That before, before, Abraham is ever even circumcised, before he ever even does the first good work as a, as a child and son of God, God has already counted him righteous on account of his faith. And of course, what is St. Paul doing in, in Romans when he makes this argument? He's quoting from Genesis. Okay, so what is, what is this to say? That sometimes we get a skewed view. We think this was all about you know, Lutherans and Roman Catholics, justification of the 16th century, and no, nothing more, nothing less. It's just this little pocket. No. This goes all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, all the way through the teaching and deeds of Jesus, all the way through the teaching and deeds of the apostles, all the way through the church fathers, um, up until the point at which Lutherans see a major problem in the medieval church, that there has been a confusion of grace and works, a confusion of faith and works. What happens there is it strips all your comfort away. Um, there was a famous Latin saying that was in vogue. It was kind of one of those theological slogans of the time, facare quad in seyes. Doesn't that just have a ring to it? <laughs> um, so, facare quad in seyes, do that which, is, that which is within you. Roughly translated into modern parlance as do your best and let God do the rest and you will be saved. How do I ever know if I've ever done my best? How could I ever know that? And then do you see how that question in and of itself is, is really a devilish, really a satanic interest? Because how are you going to answer? Yes, I have. Pride? No, I have not. Despair. I can't. If you have not, then you can't be saved. Yeah. And if you have, then you have reason to boast. <laughs> the problem is the scriptures everywhere say you have no reason to boast. All right, so we see how the devil has worked his way in here to where either answer we give to his question is wrong. That's exactly the kind of question he loves. <laughs> Once you kind of realize this is the way he works, you can start to get a sense for when he's doing that. Well, either way I go, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. He's like, yes. <laughs> All right, so we know then he's he's taken us far afield of where we need to be. Um, Facare quad in seas, do that which is in you. Do your best, let God do the rest, and you'll be saved. Um, there is no comfort in this. Zero comfort in this. There's only opportunity for pride or despair. So um, the Lutherans quoting the church fathers, quoting Paul and the other apostles, quoting Jesus, um, quoting the Old Testament scriptures, show that, no, we are justified by grace through faith apart from works. Grace alone, no works added or included. Faith alone, no works added or included. God's gift by his grace received by faith, Christ Jesus and him crucified is the center of it all. And so what happens if you add just a little bit of works? Well, the whole gospel fails. Grace fails. Faith fails. 
it all fails. And Christianity fails. The church fails. That's why we say that justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Add in one little bit of one little conditional. All you have to do is choose. All you have to do is decide. All you have to do is fill in the way. Remember in Galatians? All you have to do is be circumcised. And Paul was like, <laughs> if you are circumcised because you think you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, you have fallen from grace. So the story of false doctrine in the church in terms of the article of justification is always, Jesus has got everything done for you. All you need to do is fill in the blank. Ah, that's how the gospel is poisoned and stripped and our comfort taken away from us. The gospel, properly speaking, is Jesus has done this for you. Don't call him a liar. <laughs> Believe. Okay, But even that belief is given to you by the words themselves, which convince you of his goodness and who he is and create that faith within you. All right. So justification is, in fact, uh, the article upon which the church stands or falls. Yes, please. Uh, did I see? Did, I'm sorry. Was it way back? You were trying to get a word in edgewise? Please do. I'll help us get back. It wasn't edgewise at all, but um, it's just kind of hard to hold my thought through. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm that's sorry. Okay. About that. um, no. Now, okay, so when I sit in on Bible studies that you, they kind of, um, com, com, like, what would, we're not like Paul, but, um, I mean, they like, okay, so I'm really losing my train of thought, but people who kind of look at themselves so much and see how they're not measuring up, and that's a lot of people I know. And when I try to say otherwise or encourage them that it's, faith alone, they get all disgusted with me and they say, well, of course it is. I know that I'm saved by my faith, but they allow, so that's the confusing thing. You try to encourage them. They say, yes, I understand that. And then they go right back to how they're not measuring up because they want to feel like they're, they, I guess they want to see the growth, you know, that they're making headway. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> But yet they'll tell you, but they want it to be their sanctification. They want it so that they can be a light to their children, an example to their relatives. Mm -hmm. and this is what I hear all the time. Mm -hmm. So how do they let go of that? Or how do I clarify what they're doing? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question and a difficult one because it, it's not easily answered in the abstract. It really depends upon the person and the nature of the particular struggle. One thing we can identify kind of broadly is that there are many, many churches who have the right doctrine of justification on their church website. But it never enters the preaching. It never enters the teaching. It never enters the spirituality of the people. And so it creates this great confusion within the heart of someone because they go, I know this. I know the church teaches this. Look, it's right there on the website. It's right there in our documents. It might even be on the, the header of the, of the church letterhead. Um, I know I believe this, but what is wrong? Why do I have no comfort? Why am I in this rat race? Why am I feeling guilty? And like, if I get into heaven, it's going to be um, just because God, you know, he kind of despises me, but lets me. You know? <laughs> that's, that's why sometimes it's very helpful. And I sometimes try to preach this way. God not only loves you, he actually likes you. 
Because <laughs> sometimes in American Christianity, you get that feeling of like, God loves me, so I, he'll let me in, but he doesn't like me. <laughs> That's all really a fruit of this kind of, of this kind of confusion and bad theology. Okay, so we've identified this thing, um, in, in broad terms and generally this disease that's kind of affected, infected American Christianity. Now, what can we say to someone who's suffering from this? And that, that becomes a more difficult question because it's personalized, individualized to some extent. But maybe again, a, a generality would be rather than reminding them of the doctrine would be to simply state what Christ has done for them. And in short, preach the gospel directly to them and say, I know you feel this way, and sometimes I feel this way too. Here's the great joy. Christ has done it all for us. It's finished. And when he said that, he meant that. And his righteousness is sufficient. If it's sufficient for me, trust me, it's sufficient for you. <laughs> and St. Paul felt the same way. They all felt like if he could have grace on me, he could have grace on anyone. Um, so I think that that may be the best answer we have is... Um, uh, you know, sometimes there's a real guardedness of like, hey, I've got my doctrine right. Don't tell me about my doctrine. You know, okay, how about if I just tell you about Jesus and uh, preach Christ to you in a way that's humble, in a way that I'm included therein. Um, and that might be the best approach, in a, just in a general sense. Yeah. But I think I'm so glad you brought that up um, because that's, that's something that... Um, Many, many people, many Christians in America suffer from is uh, on both, on, on all sides, really. Um, even it takes on its Roman Catholic form, of course, but it's the sense of like, I know that I know the doctrine. I know that God is good. I know how I'm justified. I, I know I'm going to heaven, but I still feel terribly guilty. And I feel like, um, even though God loves me, he doesn't like me. And, um, and, and I'm just a failure and I don't know what to do. And, and then people will kind of thrash out in pride or despair or some mixture of the two. Um, so the answer to that is, is preach Christ. And then if you're going to do any kind of like secondary kind of work, hey, when's the last time you heard a sermon that was about Jesus and everything he's done for you? When was the last time you heard a sermon at your church about Christ and the forgiveness of your sins? Christ crucified and the forgiveness of your sins. You know, you might get a puzzled look. Well, our pastor's great. He mentions Jesus every Sunday. Does he by chance mention him right at the end of the sermon? Or is the whole sermon kind of about him? <laughs> because that's a lot of what's missing. And that's really Wolf Mueller's critique. And, and a critique that I know I resonate with, many people here at Faith resonate with, is um, churches that claim to be Bible-believing churches and Christ-centered churches uh, they really aren't. That's just the material fact. And if you're honest enough to look and listen carefully to the sermon, the sermon may be 15 minutes, it may be 45 minutes. But if Jesus isn't the central part, uh, then in what sense is this a Christian sermon? In what sense is this a sermon that comforts us? And, you know, you are what you eat. It's what our parents... Well, there's a spiritual equivalent to that too. You are what you eat. You are what you take in. And if you're taking in Christless, crossless, grace aloneless sermons and a steady, steady diet of that over time, it's going to affect you. I don't care how strong you are and how much you know the doctrine of justice, it affects you. It does. I know that it affects me. Um, you can't guard yourself against these things. Uh, so you need a, you need a steady diet of, of Christ to taste and see that the Lord is good. And, um, in that steady diet, you come to his place of spiritual health. 
So that might be kind of a follow-up question. I like the expression uh, law, gospel, law. In other words, you, you preach the gospel to the new Christian and the law and the gospel, and then you come in with the law again. So you're, you preach law, get the guy saved uh, with the gospel, and then law again. Get what I mean? I think so. I think so. I, I don't know that I'd use that exact language and framework just because it might confuse people. Um, but I think, so I think where you've got, where you've got law that is specifically showing our sins. Okay. That's what we want as the, as the precursor to the gospel. That comes first. Why? Because unless we know we're sick, we're going to have no need for the physician. So the law comes first that shows us that we're sick. Then comes the gospel of the physician. Here's who he is with his arms stretched out, with healing in his wings, with, with blood that cleanses you and makes you whole. Now in what sense does the law follow after? Well, not ever in a sense that recondemns us. Christ has, in that sense, saved us from the law. But not only has he saved us and changed us, he's changed then the way we perceive the law. So that we see the law as no longer capable of condemning us. Why? Because it condemned Christ. Well, what then is the law if not to show me my sin? Ah, to show me God's good and perfect will. Will I ever live up to that perfectly, this side of heaven? No. No. Um, we always, always need the blood of Jesus. And this is where there's this kind of slogan out there, and it's helpful. The gospel is for Christians too. <laughs> you know, there's never a moment where we outgrow our need for God's grace, for the blood of Jesus, for the gospel. Um, and now the law, because Christ shelters us from all the condemnation of the law, we're freed to see the law the way that St. Paul says it. Remember how he says it in Romans? I delight in the law in my inner man. How could you ever say that if the law is the thing condemning you and driving you to hell and telling you you're not good enough? And, you know, if that's all the law is doing, you'd never delight in it. So we let the law have its first work to condemn us and do that very thing. We let Christ have his work to save us and assure us the law has already said you cannot save yourself. Christ comes graciously and says, but I've got you. In fact, no one's going to snatch you out of my hand. And then, and then the law is transformed by the grace of Christ. It no longer condemns us, but it becomes a delight to us. Now we're praying like Psalm 119. Teach me your law, O Lord. Show me your ways. Let your word guide my path. Um, am I going to do it perfectly? Of course not. That just drives me back to Christ. But in Christ, what do I see also? One who did the law. One who I want to be like. Not because if I, I have to do that, otherwise I won't be saved. No, that would be a confusion of law and gospel, right? Yeah, so we want, yeah, I think, I think we want um, law and gospel, but then we want a kind of form and substance to the Christian life. What does it mean to be a redeemed saint of God? What does it mean to be a son, a daughter of God? And that's where we look to Christ as our pattern and as our example. And if that theology is, is noxious to anyone, well, then I don't know what to tell you, so about a third of the scriptures must be noxious to you um, because Christ as our example, Christ as our template, Christ as the one we are all aspiring to be. And in fact, God is molding us into his image. 
Um, we're, we're the we're the clay. He's the potter. Guess what the shape is? Christ. You looking like Christ in your own unique way, me looking like Christ in my own unique way. That's the project. That, by the way, is why God lays crosses upon us and afflictions upon us. Discipline, to use the language of Hebrews. Um, so that he would conform us into the image of his son for all eternity. Um, so then that's really like, yeah, we've got a problem if we just do the law says you're bad. Don't worry, Jesus says you're forgiven. The end. Well, isn't there anything more? Isn't there a form, a shape? Uh, what do I do now? What, what, uh, so what? No, 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 don't do that. You're returning to the law. No, I'm not. <laughs> just looking for, just looking for the, what the next step is, what this means tangibly for me in my life, if you don't like the chronological approach. And the answer of that is conformity into Christ. And this is really what we Lutherans call sanctification. So sometimes, sometimes like Walther, who is very informative in terms of our preaching, would use this kind of language of like law, gospel, sanctification. Now, is the law a component of sanctification? Of course. But the gospel is the chief component of sanctification. And really, when we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about being conformed into the holiness of Christ. That holiness, which has already been credited to us, mm -hmm. now we're sort of growing up into that. And we're going to call that sanctification. Even if we were to fail entirely at sanctification, could we then still be saved? Of course, because salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. Now you see how important it is to distinguish between justification and sanctification. Or in the thought paradigm we're using, you know, law gospel, sanctification. Let's keep these all really clear, really tight, and then we won't have any confusion, and we won't fall into pride or despair. We'll have the comfort of Christ. Please. I kind of think of that as we have justification, sanctification, glorification. So, anyway, that's an afterthought. What I wanted to ask sure, you was, sure. um, see that. this past week I had a thought that was rather comforting to me, and that was, you know, we think of people, they say, I have your back. Mm -hmm. I've got you covered. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's Christ. Whenever I get discouraged, he's got me covered. He's yeah. got my back. And actually, I'm covered in the robe of righteousness through baptism. So it brings it all together. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, one of my favorite verses that's akin to that is from the, the first epistle of St. John. I write these things to you that you may not sin. Okay? But if you do, we have an advocate, the righteous one, Christ Jesus our Lord. So like, like this is the perfect expression of the sanctified, I mean, of the sanctified Christian life. You don't wake up in the morning and go, woohoo, I'm free because of Christ to sin in any way I want. I'm going to sin more that grace may abound. That's what it means to live in grace and live in the gospel. Watch how evil I can be. Watch how controversial I can be. No! I mean, could you get Christianity more backwards? Paul explicitly says, we do not go on sinning that grace may abound. Should we do this? Absolutely not, he says, Romans 6.1. Um, and we do not use this liberty for licentiousness, this liberty for the sake of the flesh, written elsewhere in the scriptures. So, yeah, great point. I write these things to you that you may not sin. We wake up every morning, we go, I want to live in accordance in accordance with God's character, because he's the one who's gracious and merciful and good and righteous and just. Like father, like son, that's exactly how I want to be today. I write these things to you that you may not sit. Sort of like goal number one of the sanctified Christian life of sanctification. But we all know that it's not going to go the way we want. At least not perfectly. Even if we had a day where we were, <laughs> I don't think you can have a day, uh, but let's say, Hypothetically, you had a day where you kept your, 
You kept your body from all wrongdoing. You kept your lips from all wrong speaking. Even then, as we began this class, you're still, in order to do that, you've successfully fought this internal battle. But if you were completely sanctified, there would be no internal battle, you see? So we can think of, like, like remember the, the way we speak in our confession, thought, word, and deed? That's not just like flowery language stacked up. That's actual really good template. Like there's deed, there's word, and there's thought. Even if you can stop the deed and stop the word, you're not going to be able to stop the thought. There's going to remain this sinful nature within us until we die. In fact, that's why we need to die. It's kind of one of the fundamental questions you get asked once in a while, and it might kind of knock you back because you don't know how to answer. Like, well, if Christ died to take away death, why do we still die? Well, the answer is so that the old Adam in us will finally come to an end. That's why God leaves death in place. It's not the death of the Christian. It's not the death of the saint. It's not the death of the new man within us. It's the death of the old Adam. So we can rejoice in that. In the same way we confess our sins, we're confessing against ourselves. Have you ever thought of that? You're kind of narking on yourself. You're against yourself. It's great. And so the Christian can even approach death like that. Like, good. Good riddance to you. You're the only thing that's going to die in this moment. Properly speaking, I have no need to fear death whatsoever. The second I die, Christ my Lord, my life is going to be there. I'm going to live and not die. The only thing that's going to die is you, old flesh. You, old roadie, who I'm sick of and I've been battling and confessing against for decades now. <laughs> You're the one that's going to die. So we can lean into death as a purgative event and as a blessing that God gives us, where he brings all those things to, to an end and a close. Yeah. So, great comfort in this idea that Christ has got our back. And a very different idea than do your best and God will do the rest. I mean, again, there the problem is, well, how on earth would I ever know if I've done my best? I love, I, um, whereas that's completely wrong. Um, St. John is completely right. I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yeah. So, in that sense, he's always got our back. Pastor. Yes, please. Um, I'm sitting here thinking about faith within families, and as I've gone into seniorhood um, and as being a head of a household, you know, I I know my job is to catechize my, my home and uh, children, and and I know God has no grandchildren. Uh, yet, you know, there are examples in the Bible of, uh, you know, households being saved. Uh, you know, of course, uh, Noah and then uh, Abraham, uh, even though he uh, Ishmael was sent out of his home, all of his servants and so forth were all circumcised at one time. Uh, anyway, it goes on with uh, Isaac's household and so forth. But if you could comment on uh, um, faith within households and the importance, I think, of the the head of the of the home to uh, catechize almost daily, I guess, the, uh, the Word of God. It, it, to I grew up, I, I guess, with the idea that the family going to church, I was delegating, if you will, the responsibility of that. And so I fell short of, of catechizing. And uh, if you could just comment on that as the, your views of that importance of that. Yeah, yeah. So I view this, I view this vocationally. 
Um, the table of duties in the small catechism is a really helpful way of thinking. Um, so what are the duties of the father as the head of the household? Well, he wants to raise his children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, and that's a responsibility laid upon him. How does, how does the father do this? Well, the, the number one way that the father accomplishes this is by having his family in church every Sunday. And that's kind of baseline. Anything more that he does than that is good. Um, of course, of course, a father is an example. And if it's just, hey, go to church on Sunday, but then I don't live this Monday through Saturday, there's going to be a problem there. Um, so a father's duty is to take his family to church and to live the Christian faith. Does that mean moral perfection? No, that means a life of repentance and forgiveness. And let your children see that. Um, things like prayers at meals, things like prayers at, at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, it's great. But there aren't any laws there. I mean, that's the other thing. There just aren't any laws. And we, we constantly want to go from like, well, there's nothing there, so I don't do anything. That's wrong. <laughs> to, um, well, if, if a prayer at every meal is good, right, and salutary, then same with morning and night. And then we've got pr five times a day, but didn't David say seven times a day? So let's wake the kids up at midnight and do another one. And, you know, and so we, we're always tilting from lawlessness to legalism. That's the old Adam within us. And, it's much more of an art. This, take it for what it's worth. You ask for my perspective, this is my individual perspective in observing many, many families over the years. It's much more art than science. And family devotional life changes depending upon the age of the children, work schedules, school schedules, everything else. It changes shape and form. Okay. So what can a father do? A father can say, um, these are the ways in which I've, I, you know, Maybe if you're a father looking back, you can say, these are the ways in which I fulfilled my duty. These are the ways in which I failed. Let me confess those and receive God's forgiveness and then rest. Okay. Um, as a, if you're a young father and you're, you're kind of looking forward to you, these are the things I'm doing. These are the things I'm not doing. Let me repent of those and correct those. Okay. Um, and then, and then what do we say though about, about faith? You know, this is very important because even if a father does his duty, he can't actually mathematically create faith in his children. This is where we have to realize that our children are individuals, and our vocational calling to them is for this life only. And even that's quite temporary. It kind of dawned on me when I was about 36 that I had spent as many years on my own as I ever did in my father's house. But that's only at 36. <laughs> it dawns on you too after you're married for a certain amount of time that you've lived longer with this person than you ever did with your parents. Right. So there's these there's these things that happen that kind of shift our perspective and identity. All of this is good. We need to pay attention to this because hidden therein is this is this truth, this really rather profound truth that that the individual members of our family, we did for them what we could. We're doing for them what we can. We're failing in some ways. We're confessing. We're receiving forgiveness. But ultimately, we have to acknowledge that they're God's children. They're their own unique people with a relationship to him. We can't control if they reject him any more than we can control if they have faith in him. We can facilitate. We can only do our duty. Um, there's direct parallel to this in all vo vocations, but maybe very poignantly as a pastor, um, I can't create faith in anyone. I, sim I, I likewise also, unless I botch something horribly, uh, can't take any credit for someone rejecting Jesus. <laughs> I am an unworthy servant, I can only do my duty, which is to preach the law and the gospel, 
and, and the shape and form of the Christian life. Um, and then God works through that word, or people reject it. The same thing happens in our families as kind of a microcosm of that. And so there's a sense in which we uh, take our children, and we, whether they believe or don't believe, whether their faith is strong or weak, we simply commend them into the hands of their true father. I am but your earthly father. I am but your earthly mother. I am but your earthly brother. I am but your earthly sister. I'm, I'm but a fellow congregant of yours, um, you know, a, a brother and sister of, of Christ and here in this place. I, I've, I've done what I can, but ultimately I've got to pray for you and commend you into the hands of God himself. He's your true and eternal father. He's, you have a relationship with him. Um, or not, and that's your call. So that's part of the humility of this process. I mean, as much because as much as we'd like to control it all, if I could push a button and guarantee that my children would be in heaven, I'd push that button no matter what the cost. Easy. Done. Right? St. Paul even felt so strongly, he was much more sanctified than me, um, about all his fellow countrymen. Not just not looking at biological children, but all his fellow countrymen. He said, even if that cost me my own eternal salvation, even if I would be damned so that they could all be saved, I'd do it. I'd push that button right now. But that's not within our control. It's within our desires, but not within our control. So there's, there's the limitation of vocation, and there's great comfort in that, and there's great comfort in handing it over to God and simply saying, they're your children. Convert them, bring them to everlasting life. Yeah, yeah I was going to say for us fathers, Harry, I'm, it's, it's uh, a lot of burden. <laughs> and uh, do you take comfort in, and should we take comfort in the verse, train up a child? Uh, and then in, as an adult, they will not depart. Yeah. I mean, you can take comfort in that because obviously we're, hopefully we're going to die before them. And, um, you know, that's, yeah, that's we a may not see truth. it. Mm -hmm. It's a general truth. There, it's not to say there aren't exceptions. Um, yeah, I, um, but that's a general truth and a general encouragement for why we should do it and why our work isn't just, you know, because that's the other thing, like maybe the weakness of what I just said would be that, well, you'd say, well, it's just a it's just a crapshoot then as to whether or not, you know, it's going to have an effect. And so, no, you have more comfort and promise from God that this will work. But how is it a balance? I mean, all of us who have been parents know that you can push things too hard and your kids end up rebelling against it. And there's really no different with Christianity if you just pounded into their heads to where it's not where it's noxious and toxic and they're going to have a bad taste in their mouth and um, so that's why I say it's an art and not a science and a father's got to take a book from his position as, as father and mothers of course too by extension but um, Barry asked about fathers you know we have to it's, it's art and not science we have to take a read on the personalities we're engaged with and what they're going through and what they're doing and we have to be our artists and with our application of law and gospel artists with our application of um you know even in my household as a pastor it's like okay bare minimum for all christians is you go to church <laughs> that's where that's that's where we're not compromising okay um when we sit down at meals we're going to pray because it's god who gives us this food it's where we're not compromising now, other places, my family's compromised. We pray every night before bed. Uh, we don't pray in the morning. Why? Nobody wakes up at the same time. Everybody's cranky. <laughs> Sometimes I'll get a little action Bible in for the kids. But am I pounding them with the catechism? No, not yet. Not yet. And um, what about memory work? Well, my kids have got memory work here at Faith. And then they've got memory work through another program. James got memory work through his school. Am I going to leap on there and say, let's get after the kids? <laughs> 
mean, already it's like recipe to overload. So that's where my you know my fatherly senses are. It's like I want to make sure he's not getting overloaded here. I want to make sure our kids aren't despising. So that's part of the balance, and that's what I mean too by it shifts and fluctuates over the years. You know, some years more, some years less, some years this, some years that. All right, I see that we're out of time, and that's fine. Um, this was a this was an enjoyable meditation on justification, the distinction with sanctification. We will pick up next week, um, just kind of reintroducing the concept on ninety one, and then really, really digging into Wolf Mueller's text, um, page ninety two and following. The Lord be with you.